All right, here we go. Hello, and welcome to the Junto Cast, a podcast on early American history. I'm Ken Owen, Associate Professor at the University of Illinois Springfield and author of the book Political Community in Revolutionary Pennsylvania, 1774-1800. to This month, I've got my pitchfork at the ready and I'm about to engage in some tax protests. That's right, we're talking about insurrections in early America. And to join me in this discussion, as usual, I'm joined by Michael Hatton, who is Associate Director of the Yale New Haven Teachers Institute and author of Past and Prologue, Politics and Memory in the American Revolution. Thanks for joining me, Michael. Thanks, you can. Also here is Roy Rogers, a history teacher at the District of Columbia International School. Thanks for being here, Roy. Howdy, Ken. Before we get into the substantive discussion that will look at different examples of insurrections in early America, we wanted to start by having a brief conversation about how exactly we define the term insurrection. We're recording this in January 2021, and We are influenced in our discussion by the events that took place on January the 6th, 2021, when rioters, insurrectionists, protesters invaded the Capitol building during the counting of Electoral College results with the intent to overturn or overthrow the results of the 2020 presidential election. One of the things that we've seen in the days since those events took place is the difficulty in finding a catch-all term that describes both the participants in the attack and the events themselves. We've seen a number of different terms, riots, protests, insurrections, coups, none of which entirely fit. And there's an equal problem when we talk about some of the events that we are looking at in early America. What exactly defines an insurrection? Michael, I know that you were looking into the difference between insurrection and rebellion in preparation for the episode. Did that give you much enlightenment? No. Uh, So what I found was a sort of, uh, uh, this is the distinction, uh, dictionary distinction that I found, is that a rebellion is armed resistance to an established government or ruler. An insurrection is an organized opposition to an authority, right? So there's not not a lot of daylight between them, and the, the problem is sort of compounded, by the the way that these terms are sort of used, if not interchangeably, then side by side in the U.S. code. So if you think about the rebellion or insurrection part of the code, this is 182383. It's whoever incites, sets on foot, assists or engages in any rebellion or insurrection 
against the United States, et cetera, et cetera. So there's some distinction made there, but it, but again, that distinction is not defined. So this just goes back to Ken's earlier point. It's been hard to find the proper terminology to describe what we witnessed a few weeks ago. And it's almost equally as problematic to define some of these events that we're going to talk about from the late 18th century. I think also one of the things that kind of strikes me about what people refer to rebellions and insurrections is they frequently are failed attempts to overthrow a government, to um, you know overturn an election, um, rather than a successful one, because typically we call them revolutions. Now, there's no consistency in that, right? You know, many of, for example, the revolutions of uh, 1848 were insurrections or rebellions by that definition. But in many ways, it is helpful to think about that frequently what people call rebellions and insurrections are failed attempts to do that. And there's an also an interesting point in which something like an insurrection becomes a revolution. Um, and where sort of that line is, is, is interesting to think about if, again, with so many of these things, difficult to pin down in many ways. And I think this is something we also talked about in our political violence episode. It's very much like trying to grab hold of water. Like you think you can grab it, but once you do, you just end up soaked. I, I agree. And there's there's a couple of things that, that I'd add. One is that, Michael, you've already mentioned the US code and, and really the Constitution doesn't offer us much help either. I mean, people have quoted the 14th Amendment quite a lot recently. That uses insurrection or rebellion in the same clause. That, that, that is the phrase that's taken directly. In light of what Roy's just said, it also points out that there's an implication in its use in the 14th Amendment that insurrection or rebellion is unsuccessful because that is the only way that the United States would continue to have authority to pass judgments on those who had engaged in said insurrection or rebellion after the fact, um, which I think is, is, is really interesting when we think of these as terms with legal standing. It, it kind of presupposes that they've, they've failed because it's dealing with their punishment after the fact. Um, the other thing that I would add, though, is that it all, because this puts most rebellions or insurrections in the realm of failure, it also means that there is a difficulty in drawing the line on the other end of when is something violent or threatening enough to qualify as an insurrection. And one of the things that we will see as we go through a couple of the examples here is that there were definitely those within government who had the interests of talking up the threatening nature of violent protest and violent um, events to suggest a much greater plan against government than might actually have existed on the ground. And so we actually have a problem at, at both ends. You know, what, what is it automatically a failed attempt? And if so, when is it actually serious enough to be a threat that deserves the label of insurrection? Yeah, that's a great point. So, I mean, it raises this question of, on the one end, when do when does a protest or a riot become a rebellion or an insurrection? In our political violence episode, or both parts of our political violence episodes, we talked about a number of riots and protests that, that we didn't refer to as rebellions or insurrections. So it's a distinction that we want to keep our eye on as we go through our discussion today. 
Yes, I mean, for, 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 for my part, when thinking of insurrections and when we were discussing what we, we wanted to talk about today, I believe that there has to be some particular plan on stopping the operation of government in some shape or form by force of arms. Um, but I realise, again, that's quite a broad term. And as if to emphasise the breadth, um, I just also wanted to highlight a couple of other episodes of the Junto cast where we've touched on similar themes. Um, on episode 14, we talked about popular protest in early America. And in episodes 25 and 26, we talked about political violence in a discussion that stretched from colonial America um, through the 19th century. So if you are interested in other takes that we've had um, on related themes, um, episodes 14, 25 and 26 would definitely be good starting points on these issues. Michael, I know you wanted to mention a little bit about colonial rebellions <laughs> and insurrections at this point. Um, so perhaps if I, I hand over to you to talk about some of that history of attempts to overthrow governments in colonial America. I don't think that we need to cover it really in any depth because we've done that in these other episodes that Ken's named. Um, but I would say if we're picking out a few of the most notable um, rebellions or insurrections, clearly Bacon's Rebellion uh, in Virginia in the 1670s, Leisler's Rebellion, and, and the Rebellion in Boston in 1689 following the change of power in, in England after the Glorious Revolution. And then also in the political violence episode, the first one, we talked about the New York conspiracies of 1741. And while we don't know the actual truth of what happened there, to be fair, we know that at least part of what the authorities claimed was going on was an attempt to, to actually overturn the colonial government. So we have a number of these examples, especially from the, the latter part of the 17th century, that a number of historians have, have argued played a really pivotal role in changing the course of the colonial history of the uh, what would later become the United States. So rather than rehashing those today, uh, I would refer our listeners back to, especially to the, the first episode about political violence, to get more of our takes on, on those rebellions. I'm particularly glad that you've mentioned 1741, because that was one thing that I had, had meant to include when, when talking about the, the topic introduction. Um, in, in the rest of today's episode, we are going to be talking about some specific um, attacks on the US government in the 1780s and 1790s. We're going to look at some of the instability amongst soldiers after the Revolutionary War, um, and we're going to look at the Shays, Whiskey and Freeze rebellions from the 1780s and 1790s. Um, you'll notice there that 1741, the New York conspiracy, was a conspiracy or an alleged conspiracy of the enslaved rebelling against the institution of slavery. 
And there are slave rebellions that take place in early America as well. Um, again, referred to using a variety of the terms that we've already discussed and very definitely opposing by force um, the established rule of law in early America. That is to say, under the broadest definitions of what we've um, talked about already, the rebellions of the enslaved would definitely fall under um, those definitions. I'm thinking here of Gabriel's Rebellion, um, the Denmark Vasey Rebellion, Nat Turner's Rebellion, or the Southampton Insurrection in 1831. We intend to talk about slave insurrection and slave rebellion in a future episode of the Junto cast, but for reasons of time and um, today, and particularly because we're focusing on events in January 2021 and a very direct link to the legitimacy of and the authority of elected governments, we're specifically concentrating on those rebellions and insurrections that were framed both at the time and by historians as being specifically directed against governments carrying out what were seen to be illegitimate acts. Uh, One sort of final thought about the colonial period, and I think it reinforces um, the difficulty in defining rebellions and insurrections, uh, is, you know, for example, there are a few successful insurrections and rebellions during the colonial period. I think the one that really stands out to me is, of course, the Protestant associators in Maryland who overthrow the Catholic leadership of the colony and institute a a Protestant-run government that lasts until the revolution. But it's not a revolution because, of course, England uh, remains the imperial overlord. There's not a fundamental change between the relationship between Maryland and um, and the metropole, but there is a very big change in how Maryland is governed and what it means for the Catholic minority. So that, again, events like that that happened in the colonial period really show how liminal and difficult to define uh, this term of insurrection and rebellion is. Right. So I think that one of the things that, that you might pull from that is that Insurrections that happen in a colonial context are, in some sense, by definition, different from the type of insurrections that we're going to be talking about for the majority of this episode, which are insurrections against an an elected representative government. And this also applies to the enslaved rebellions, which have their own very specific context that really deserves to be explicated fully, which is why we're going to reserve discussing those for a coming episode. It is interesting there, though, that we we highlight the importance of identifying specifically exactly what the level of governments being attacked was. Um, Again, to think of colonial instances of violence, Pennsylvania has election riots in the mid-18th century, but generally historians have referred to them as that, as election riots. Clearly, they're engaged in a process of violently contesting the established political process by which leaders are chosen in Pennsylvania, yet they don't seem to rise to the systematic plot that's 
um, that's implied by the use of the term insurrection. If we move to the 1780s, though, when we do start to see violence being directed against American governments, or when we see violence being planned against American governments, immediately it seems to be thought of as inherently more destabilising and threatening to the body politic. Clearly there is a, a difference here in looking at British colonial rule in which power is derived from the crown and American democratic, small d democratic rule in which power is derived from the authority of the people. But the 1780s were a particularly turbulent time um, in terms of establishing new forms of governments. And quite often it was soldiers who were most violently questioning the efficacy and the validity of the new forms of government. If we look at 1783 in particular, we can think of two specific instances, um, the Newburg conspiracy um, and the mutiny of the Pennsylvania line in, in Philadelphia um, as times when soldiers specifically considered violently overthrowing American forms of government. So we might start our discussion, especially about soldier unrest, by talking about the quote-unquote Newburgh conspiracy. So in 1783, the army is encamped at Newburgh in New York with not much happening because treaty talks are going on in Paris. And the soldiers, in many cases, had not been paid for years. And even though uh, Washington petitioned the Congress about this many times— the Congress, because it couldn't lay direct taxes, was largely unable to properly fund the army. And that had been that way since 1775. And the soldiers grew increasingly frustrated with the situation, as you can imagine. And so there was an attempt to marshal that discontent by some officers, uh, perhaps with some prodding or approval from certain members of Congress and the army who wanted a stronger government than the Articles of Confederation. Uh, and so a few officers met and an address circulated around the camp that uh, told the soldiers they should declare an ultimatum on Congress. Either they get paid or the army will march on Congress. And Washington uh, tried to defuse the situation. He was ultimately successful in doing so. But Given these calls for the army to effectively seize power from Congress, this is a real potential moment of contingency for the revolution and the new nation. And it is a good reminder uh, that the revolution did not have to turn out the way that it did. Uh, and, and that there was a possibility here in 1783 of what we what we might call a, a coup. Well, I mean, I mean, later the same year, it spills over very, um, very noticeably. Um, the Pennsylvania line has already mutinied before 1783, but um, in, in 1783, the, the, the soldiers um, mutiny again. They revolt over the failure to get um, sufficient back pay. They, they no longer believe in promises to get 
um, paid in, in the future are, are sufficient for the the hazard that they have put themselves at um, whilst whilst serving in the war, and they march on Philadelphia, where the Congress under the Articles of Confederation is meeting. Um, they point their guns through the windows of the Pennsylvania State House, which is now known as as Independence Hall, and the Pennsylvania government realizes that they don't have that much authority to be able to guarantee the security of Congress. Congress says, look, we we had guns pointed at our heads. You need to make sure that the security of Congress is a priority. Pennsylvania, seeing that the issue had sprung from a mutiny amongst their own soldiers, said, we we can't do that. Um, and Congress spent the summer at Princeton um, because the, and indeed it wasn't until 1790 that um, the nation's capital returned to, to, to being in, in Philadelphia um, because there was that fear that the state authorities wouldn't be capable of protecting the national government from protests and, and, and violence within the states. Um, it's actually one of the things that I think is interesting about um, early 2021, that so much of the questions have been over whether it's advisable to have the security of the capital in the hands of the federal government under the executive branch. And, and yet that solution was created in the federal constitution precisely to avoid what happened in 1783 when guns were were pointed through the window of Congress. What we can see here very clearly is that there is a lot that is still up for grabs. Um, this is the people of the Pennsylvania line don't just believe that um, a social contract has been violated by government. They they believe an actual contract has been violated. You know, there there are very real grievances here. Um, even if we don't accept the the ways in which they they protested against the failure to be paid, um, it's not too difficult to see why why feelings would run so high. And I think it's particularly important to mention because when people talk about Newburgh, so much is invested in the virtue of Washington, um, him, him putting down the resistance, his very ostentatious, carefully choreographed display of resigning his commission that's celebrated in an image at the, in, a, in a painting at the US Capitol today um, about the subordination of the military to the, the civil power. Um, but that was not the only instance of American troops violently protesting government. It was it was not just a theoretical threat. This was something that threatened to actually overthrow government in 1783, in, in the year that peace that with Great Britain was found. I mean, the thing about that, the, the famous painting, you know, that you're talking about at the Capitol, the, the Trumbull painting of Washington resigning his commission is he's resigning that commission at Annapolis. And the reason that he's resigning it at, at Annapolis is because this mutiny had occurred and the Congress had moved. So the actions of these 500 or so soldiers, who eventually Washington ultimately sent 1,500 troops or so to suppress the mutiny, but their their actions are, are actually embedded in that famous painting just by the by its location. I think there's also two important strands I think we want to pull out, um, one of which I think is going to have important uh, 
implications for when we talk about uh, sort of post uh, in the constitutional period. I think the first is, you know, this is in many ways a pretty classical Republican problem of this sort of threat of the military and what to do with it, right? To win independence, to win a republic required the creation of this army. And, you know, there there's recent memory in English history of someone using the army to seize control. And it was an, a narrow run thing. And that's something I think people were acutely aware of at the time and took really seriously because, again, they could look at English history for a really concrete example. And then you can, of course, go back to these problems being recurring in ancient Rome and all that sort of stuff. Um, the other one is um, a lot of these soldiers' complaints are about questions of political economy, where will the national government be able to meet the resources or meet the requirements of, of of governing this new republic you know um and at the point in which newburgh happens and the mutiny of the pennsylvania line happens it's it's clear to these soldiers that that's not going to happen and that promises of you know land that may materialize at some point or cash money is just not going to happen in a way that is going to be able for them to support their families is is really critical here and it's this reoccurring question of political economy in this new government that is going to reoccur over and over and over again in these sort of early national insurrections and i think that's a really good segue to to shays's rebellion uh shays's rebellion is named after daniel shays uh, from Western Massachusetts, who leads a number of former militiamen who have the same grievances that we've talked about as um, inflecting the the Pennsylvania line in in 1783, who who feel very much abandoned on their political economy concerns um, in 1786. This is heightened by the actions of the Massachusetts state government um, in the 1780s who pass a law that not only do uh, Western Massachusetts farmers think is um, unreasonably burdensome on them, um, but demand payment in hard cash um, to be delivered to Boston. So you have almost a, a perfect storm of issues that are going to make militiamen angry. There's the effects of a post-war depression. There are a group of ex-servicemen who have not been paid for their war service, who are now being taxed and being told that they have to deliver their tax payments in hard currency, which they barely have enough of in Western Massachusetts to begin with, that they're going to have to deliver to Boston the you know, one of the mercantile centres of the early US that where access to cold hard cash is not so much of an issue. And so Shays leads um, former militiamen in an attempt to seize a federal armory and thus to seize control of the Massachusetts state government. Um, so we see a number of those through lines um, of, of the grievances of those soldiers combining with new expectations that are being placed on the democratic system and notions of popular sovereignty in the new republic. 
Yeah, so I think that there's two points that can add to that. One, it should be pointed out that one of the axes of the conflict is east-west between the the metropolitan center of Massachusetts and Boston and and the peripheries of the, the western part of the state. And it is the case in the 1780s that the people of Massachusetts were being taxed very heavily, uh, much more heavily than they ever had been by Britain. And that's because many of those taxes went to pay off the war debt. And a lot of that war debt was held by wealthy Eastern creditors in Boston. And so not only are these uh, Western farmers trying to navigate a post-war recession, but they're seeing that their suffering is serving the purpose of enriching people who made money off the war rather than uh, serving the cause in the army like Shays and his Confederates. And that's especially galling because if you can't pay these taxes in specie and hard coin, which you likely don't have, uh, you could not only have your farm seized, but you could be sent to debtor's prison. And so this sort of goes to the second point, uh, which is that Shays' Rebellion, it's important to note that it escalated over time. The first actions of the rebellion was to seize the local courthouse to stop the courts from uh, seizing land of these uh, farmers who were in debt. And it's only as the situation uh, escalates, um, because it's initially aimed at the state government, that it becomes an issue for the Confederation government. I think a brief note is also important that these kinds of insurrections or rebellions were not entirely isolated to just Shays Rebellion. There were these sort of similar insurrections that shut down courthouses, that these these techniques were not unique to Shays. Sort of Shays is a flare up uh, that becomes particularly sizable, but you you know you can you definitely see it in places like Pennsylvania and Virginia and in other and other um, states in this time where this was a really important tool for local communities to control their own destiny in a time in which, again, the political economy is really unsettled and organized in a way that doesn't clearly serve their interests. And and I think it also highlights the challenges of organizing political protest. I mean, clearly the attack on a federal armory marks Shea's out as a different kind of leader to those that you'd see in in protesting foreclosures at other county courthouses, for example. Um, there's there's clearly something that it, that is more intentional and and more organised in terms of giving long lasting general strength to protesters rather than a targeted protest against the operation of the the, the political economy of the time um the, the reason i phrase it like that is that one of my favorite articles on the circumstances of shays's rebellion is uh, woody holton's article where he looks at the variety of ways in which New Englanders had tried to protest. And he's actually able convincingly to demonstrate that there was probably a legislative majority in Massachusetts against the tax law that was passed and that Shays um, and friends rebelled against. The problem was that one of the forms of protest that was used in Western Massachusetts was to refuse to send 
your representative to the legislature. Representatives were paid for by their townships and therefore refusing to contribute the funds to send a representative to Boston um, was a way of showing your displeasure or your disapproval of the actions of the state government. It's just that in the mid-1780s, that meant that it swung the balance from there being a majority against the Boston tax, the pro-Boston tax regime, to there being a majority for the pro-Boston tax regime. And a lot of what we see afterwards um, is that difficulty of once your initial form of protest has failed, how do you reorganise a protest without escalating the severity of the conflict? We also see with Shays the challenge of how to frame a rebellion. Um, We've talked there about that standoff between state and national government, um, that because this is a rebellion taking place just in Massachusetts, it is not clear that the Confederation Congress has any authority to send troops to Massachusetts to put down the rebellion, even though it's targeting a federal armory. Um, That means that Massachusetts and the national government are therefore involved in a standoff in which Massachusetts wants to play down the severity of Shays's protests because they don't want to invite the federal army into any sort of occupation and potentially inflame passions even worse. But at the same time, there is a prominent nationalist movement that will ultimately seek the um, adoption and ratification of the the federal constitution that wants to emphasise how violent and how threatening Shays' rebellion is, because that way they can highlight the weakness of the Articles of Confederation and make a full-throated appeal for a stronger national government. And so we find that actually, even as the rebellion is going on, there is a battle for framing and defining what the actual nature of the protest is that is being done for very specific partisan purposes. Yeah, and that's complicated by the fact that many of Shay's Confederates were former militiamen or had served in the Continental Army and very much adopted the rhetoric of the revolution in making their case and justifying their actions. And that raises a really interesting question, for me at least, about this contest for ownership of the revolutionary legacy that is part of Shays' Rebellion and that ultimately contributed to a reorganization um, through the Constitutional Convention and ratification of both the national state and the memory of the revolution itself. Exactly. And and this is a question that comes up again in the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, Indeed, the very reason that the Whiskey Rebellion breaks out is that arrest warrants are being issued for those who have refused to pay the excise tax in Western Pennsylvania, occurring on the very same day that the Western Pennsylvania militia are mustering to prepare for 
potential warfare on the frontier with Native Americans at the request of the federal government. That is to say that the armed and organised attack on John Neville, the the tax collector in Western Pennsylvania, is organised by those who are only meeting together at the on that particular day because they are responding positively to a request of the federal government it shows just how much was perceived to be up for grabs in defining the memory of the revolution in defining the powers of the new government um, and in defining the appropriate limits of of how you could protest against um actions that you believed were unjust and unconstitutional. Yeah, so in the 1780s, as uh, former radical revolutionary leaders like uh, Samuel Adams and John Hancock were uh, now in positions of power or state offices, uh, they responded to Shays much like uh, Thomas Hutchinson and other royal officials responded to Adams and the Sons of Liberty in the 1760s. In the 1780s, Adams makes the case in a famous letter to Noah Webster that actions like Shays are illegitimate uh, and differ from the Sons of Liberty in the 1760s because now there was a popularly elected government in Massachusetts. So even before the we the people of the Constitution, this idea of popular sovereignty is being used as a sort of cudgel against those who would engage in popular actions. Exactly the same responses are issued, actually, from a number of different um, who people who would otherwise be political antagonists in, in 1794 with the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, the, the initial response of the General Advertiser, which is the paper that's edited by Benjamin Franklin Beish, um, which is the main opposition newspaper to the Federalist administration, says um, citizens have all kinds of means of opposing um, laws. They can elect representatives, they can petition, they can remonstrate, they can write editorials, they can do a whole host of things. If it doesn't actually succeed in getting the law overturned, it is their duty to to submit. Um, More information comes out and more public reaction pushes the general advertiser into more support for the Whiskey Rebels later in the summer. Um, But that's still a a default position, an instinctive position, even from um, even from people who do not like the Hamiltonian financial plan. Hamilton pushes that even further. I mean, Hamilton writes essays where he says Western Pennsylvanians are disproportionately represented in the House of Representatives, and yet they're still complaining. You know, what more do they want? Um, at the same time, though, Hamilton has also been looking for a reason to raise an army and to send troops into Western Pennsylvania for a long time. There has been protest against the excise system from the early 1790s. A lot of this has been 
unsavoury. Yeah, there's been a lot of intimidation and attacks on those that have sought to take on the office of tax collector, or even those that would rent a room to the office of of tax collector. Yeah, there there has been a lot of intimidatory violence, but nothing that has risen to something that seems like an organised plan um, or an organised attack systemically on government and that means that when news of the burning down of the tax collector's house um, reaches Philadelphia Hamilton is on it straight away he's mobilising the Supreme Court to issue a proclamation of rebellion, he's in meetings with the state government of Pennsylvania demanding that the militia is called out immediately which leads to some incredibly fiery responses from the Pennsylvania Chief Justice where he says if this happens it would be every bit as illegal as anything that the that the rioters had done um the point being again that this question of determining exactly how planned things are does have a lot to do with the eye of the beholder um just to give one more example of this um one of the things that is used to show that the Whiskey Rebellion was an organised plan against government is a militia march that's, um, where Western Pennsylvanian militiamen march on Pittsburgh. It's believed that it's with the intention of attacking Fort Pitt, again, a federal armoury, although they never actually get to Fort Pitt. I think it's really interesting for us to look at the reaction of the citizens of Pittsburgh, who are suddenly presented with several thousand angry militiamen marching towards their city. On the one hand, they're incredibly frightened. Um, They are frightened to the extent that we have numerous reports of people burying valuable items in their back gardens because they think that there's a strong possibility that their houses are torn apart or set ablaze when the militia reaches Pittsburgh. On the other hand, they believe that there is enough potential to defuse the situation that they elect a committee to meet the militiamen as they enter the city of Pittsburgh and give them drinks and basically welcome them as if they're the guests of the city. And it shows that it's really difficult actually to determine the intent. This is something that could very easily have turned into an attack on a federal armory. It doesn't end up that way. It ends up in a night of of drunken revelry where everyone agrees that they don't really like the federal government all that much. But hey, what are you going to do about it? Let's drink. And we see throughout in both Shays and the Whiskey Rebellion that the challenges of saying at any point that there was a definite plan. Some people definitely had the impulse to overthrow government and to replace the new democratic systems with something different, whether that be a a reimagined democracy or some other form of government. But other than that, there might have been some vague thought amongst certain people within the crowds that participated in these rebellions, these insurrections, it is much harder to discern that with any level of certainty. So the question I have for you then, Ken, is... Was the Whiskey Rebellion a rebellion? I mean, that's sort of one of the things that is argued in the historiography um, with the Newburgh Conspiracy, with Shays' Rebellion, with the Whiskey Rebellion, that none of these uh, 
rebellions, insurrections arise in and of themselves to the level of actual threats to the government um, of the United States. And that it's really the political opposition to the ideas at the core of, in particular, the Whiskey Rebellion, uh, but to a lesser extent, Shays and Newberg, um, that sort of drum this up as sort of a, a monster in which to reinforce um, their pre-existing political po- programs in the form of Hamilton, or in the case of Newberg, stir up this conspiracy in the case of Hamilton to sort of you know, give Washington an opportunity to continue to raise his profile and, and, and things like that. So you you sort of see that there was there really a slew of, of insurrection in the early, in the early national period, or was it largely, you know, the dog, the tail wagging the dog? The Federalist response to the Whiskey Rebellion, I think, does fall much more into the category of the the tail wagging the dog. I think that there was a determination, especially on the part of Hamilton, um, and to a lesser extent on the part of Washington, to show the seriousness and the power of the federal government. Um, I think that they had grown very distasteful of the way that the presidency had become such a partisan, openly questioned office in the mid-1790s, and they saw this as an opportunity of resetting some political norms um, that they believed had had fallen out of place from from their efforts at the, the end of the 1780s. At the same time, though, I think it's harder to say that this wasn't directly a rebellion. Um, On the lowest form of definition that we've given, um, armed resistance to actions of government, it very clearly falls into that category. I also think that a lot of the events that we end up talking about as revolutions start off in this mass of confusion. Um, And there were definitely people in that crowd that marched on Pittsburgh who would have been quite happy for this to erupt into an armed uprising against the Washington administration. Um, Whether they actually had a particular plan or any particular idea how that would mobilise is another question. But you could definitely write an alternative course of events in July and August 1794 that is completely plausible that could have pushed the um, Whiskey Rebellion to a much bigger armed showdown with the with the federal government um, or even um, some form of independent state being created west of the Appalachian Mountains. I don't think that it's necessarily likely but it definitely had the the makings of and the possibility to be an event that might even go further than what we would describe as a rebellion and an insurrection and i think that's one of the real the real challenges as you as you can tell i've been thinking a lot about this in in the past few days how do you discern the intentions of a crowd of thousands or, or or tens of thousands when most of them don't 
necessarily know exactly what they're doing or why they're doing, but there are people who are leading that crowd who have much more detailed ideas. I think that many of the people that march on Pittsburgh do so because they feel that they need to protest and that they need to keep the energy of their protest up and validate the standoff that they had at John Neville's house. But there are definitely, though, and and I say that in general terms because I don't think they then thought that it would be a good idea to shoot on federal troops, but there are definitely those who were in that crowd that would not have minded if it ended up in a pitched battle. This question of intent and outcome as it relates to definition makes me think about, say, the 1760s. There's little, if anything, that happens in the 1760s or up to 1773, for that matter, that if independence was not ultimately declared, that we would look back on and refer to as a rebellion or insurrection. When we talk about the American Revolution and people include the 1760s, when they use that term, people at the time in the 1770s, 1780s, even even after, they did not think of the what happened in the 1760s as part of the quote-unquote revolution. You can see how that's the case when you take into account these these factors that that Ken is talking about in terms of intent and outcome and and definition. Yeah, I mean, I wonder when you mention the 1760s, and and I don't want to get us too far down a counterfactual rabbit hole here, but you know, what would have happened in 1765 if the the violence of the the Boston crowd hadn't been so effective in getting the stamp collectors up and down the eastern seaboard to resign their their commissions. It seems to me that again that's one of those liminal events that you know, if you're writing about this in 1785 and you've just been through a, a decade long continental war with much bloodshed, the Stamp Act riots probably don't amount to much more than a than a hill of beans, but. But if you if you went to to 1765, it's it's and you think of um, New York and the the questions of landing the stamps in 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 New York Harbor and, and and the protests there, how easily that could have shifted to to something more like the Boston Tea Party at an earlier stage as well. I think one of the things, I, I, well, I think it's one of the reasons that insurrection is so difficult to. Define, And one of the reasons that it's so difficult to talk about, even in contemporary political discourse, is that you don't really know how much of an insurrection something is until you've been able to have some historical distance um, to, to, to assess the importance of the event. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that's really important about the 1780s and 1790s that we talk about in our political violence episode that I want to reaffirm here is I think what makes these rebellions, insurrections possible um, is really the unsettled nature of federal power um, and the fact that the government is still solidifying. And you could you, you could argue that, you know, the Whiskey Rebellion being put down how uh, is, and I put some scare quotes, you can't see the scare quotes, um, is one of the important liminal moments of that story of the solidification of federal power that the eventual transition of peaceful transition of power in 1800 um, is going to sort of solidify into the point in which insurrection becomes 
much more serious, I guess you could say, in the early 19th century than it, and more unthinkable to many people than it would have been in the 1780s and uh, and into the into the 1790s. I think it becomes something that is much more of a breaking of political norms and existing outside of the political culture, at, at the very least the, the free white political culture, than um, it would have been in the 1780s and 1790s. I think part of the reason for that, Roy, is the fact that the Federalists had some success in being able to frame protest as potential rebellion or insurrection. You, you asked me to what extent was the Whiskey Rebellion a rebellion. The one that I feel much more confident in saying wasn't really that much of a rebellion at all was the Freeze Rebellion in, in 1799. And, and perhaps that's why of the three big rebellions in the 1780s and 1790s, it's the one that's um, least remembered um, and, and most forgotten. Um, again, it's a, a protest against attacks. It's a protest against um, people people who have been arrested for refusing to comply with a tax law that demanded um, tax assessments be carried out on on private property and militiamen in the Lehigh Valley march to Bethlehem where prisoners are being held at the Sun Inn um, and they basically demand and secure the release of the prisoners who have refused to comply with with the tax law. Um, it's named after John Fries. Fries had actually marched as a Federalist to the West in 1794 as a militia captain in the Whiskey Rebellion. Um, it's difficult to know how much he actually supported the actions of the rebellion that bears his name. He was elected militia captain. It was clear how much the um, people of his area despised the tax. And the militia was a representative body that could speak with the will of the people in with some reasonable level of, of confidence. The armed standoff itself isn't really even all that much of a standoff. You read the depositions and it would certainly have been frightening for any federal officer or person that was assisting federal authorities in in, in taking prisoners um, in, in 1799. Um, you can see how the psychology might have made it a scary event, but it doesn't seem to have the big weighty countenance that um, the thousands of people that you find massed in the Whiskey Rebellion. However, there are two important points of context to note here. One of this one of them is that this is taking place within about 75 miles of Philadelphia, the national capital. It's also taking place at a time when the Adams administration is placing the nation on a war footing, raising a new army and preparing for a potential French invasion in the midst of the quasi-war. And therefore there is a particular unwillingness on the part of key federalists to entertain any sort of action that might be seen to suggest the legitimacy of violence being used against the federal government. And therefore, there is a 
particular effort to frame Freeze as the leader of an armed insurrection that is particularly dangerous to the um, to the survival of the United States. And so I think that there is very much a propaganda campaign on the part of Federalists. Again, as with most effective propaganda, there is there is some basis of truth for the way that they frame the actions. Do we really want to live in a society where people are constantly taking up arms to protest the laws that are passed by Congress? At the same time, presenting it as a rebellion aimed at overthrowing government seems to me to stretch the the designs of Freeze way past breaking point. Now that we've discussed a variety of different threats and purported threats to American government in the 1780s and 1790s, that brings us more or less to the end of our discussion today. But as usual, um, I'm going to end our discussion by going round the table and thinking about our main takeaways from the issues that we've discussed today. Michael, what's your key takeaway from our discussion on insurrections? I think one of the one of the key takeaways here is just is just how important the context is, right? Um, uh, you can't understand uh, you know these rebellions that we've been talking about uh, without their uh, without a decent understanding of their context. At just as the same goes for what we saw uh, a few weeks ago in in Washington. I think what we see here. Uh, in, in the late 18th century, is part of the process of, of not just a new government, but uh, but also of the institution building process that comes along with that. What we're seeing is people testing out how to deal with institutions, whether that's the courts or the state government or the federal government and its taxes. Um, but and we're also seeing those institutions testing out how to deal with people. I mean, we see that with the the way that the the army is called out for the whiskey rebellion with with Washington at its head. That's the only time in American history that that's happened. So the, I think a, a key part of this it has to do with the process of inst- institution building that the new nation unavoidably had to go through in this period, and and I would that includes political parties and goes to the the, the partisan aspects of this that 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 Ken has talked about. And so what you end up with is a situation where. You know, new forms of power and new forms of authority end up requiring, in some sense, new forms of protest or new forms of justification for protest. And if that's happening in in a sort of less than solid context, that can easily spill over into rebellion or or insurrection, which themselves are also in in the process of being defined. And I think that uh, one of the other things that I would note, and and Roy pointed this out, and and he might talk more about this, um, but is just really is, is the 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 centrality of the po- of political economy to these protests in the late 18th century to all of these protests that we've talked about, right? And how central economic factors were in shaping why these insurrections arose. These Western Massachusetts farmers the uh, Western Pennsylvania distillers, they're not 
flying on private jets or riding their private carriages to these insurrections, right? There are real economic issues that are at stake for them that the federal government is also having to try to deal with and and reconcile. And all of that is combined in, in the cauldron of this part of the early national period. Roy, what's your main takeaway? I want to build on, on what Michael said there and sort of emphasize a part of this story that's sort of like, I think, a bookend to this period. Um, and that is the peaceful transition of power of the election of 1800. I think it is really important to sort of shifting the legitimacy of rebellions and insurrections against the federal government. Because it sh- because what the election of 1800 does, as contested and difficult as it is, is that protest, electoralism, can have actual results on the national government in a way in which the kinds and types of armed protest techniques that were developed in beginning in the 1760s and across through the revolution and, and into the 1780s and, and 1790s aren't necessary. And there's a gradual sort of bracketing of these violent insurrectionist techniques to something that exists outside or maybe adjacent to mainstream free white political culture. And I think that that's a really important turning point in our history and in our political development that's really important to think about. Because one of the things that um, is true of all historical analogies is that they are all crooked. But the history of insurrections and rebellions is a particularly crooked history when drawing, attempting to draw a one-to-one comparison between, you know, what happened on January 6, 2021 with things that happened in the American Civil War, things that happened during Reconstruction, things that happened um, in the 1780s and 1790s. Um, And I think particularly that the norms of a peaceful transition of power at the national level was not established. And, you know, as much as Adam, Washington to Adams is a, is a transition of power, Adams and, and Washington shared the broad same political uh, priorities compared to Adams and Jefferson, which is, you know, a, a revolution of 1800, as Jefferson would put it. So it's really important that that norm was not established and wasn't shown that it could stick when the Whiskey Rebellion and, and the Freeze Rebellion happened. And that's a really important context that we don't, always think about and we don't always articulate what's your takeaway ken my emphasis would be on the importance of understanding historical contingency we've talked a lot about the difficulty of defining a riot a rebellion an insurrection and a revolution and a lot of this comes down to the fact that historical events that cause change happen very quickly and very unpredictably. And in all the examples that we've highlighted from the 1780s and 1790s, it is very easy to write alternative histories in which the initial waves of protest that were scarcely violent at all fizzled out or resulted in swift and meaningful change and thus the protests never really merited consideration as rebellions or insurrections at all. On the other hand it's also very possible where we can see 
things that we've talked about as rebellions and insurrections becoming much more serious, deep-rooted, long-lasting and deadly contests as well. That happens for a whole host of incidents, including those that, that we haven't talked about. The shutting down of of county courthouses, the intimidation of tax um of, of tax collectors. I might even add, just to to throw a little dart at, at Roy's argument, we might even say that about the election of eighteen hundred. Um the, the the transfer of power in eighteen hundred ultimately passed off peacefully but we could easily rewrite the history of the election of 1800 to see ways that that could have been much more violent as well and so i think it's important when we're throwing around terms like rebellion and insurrection whether we're discussing modern day or historical events to be precise about what we are describing to try and understand the causes of protests and to understand the participants in the violent events that become labelled as rebellions or insurrections. Whenever we look at participants on a mass scale, we discover a variety of um, backgrounds, we discover a diversity of motives, of interventions, of, of reasons for participation. And especially in violent protest, it is not at all clear at the start of one of those episodes what the dominant outcome, what the dominant ideology or the dominant turning point of those events will be. That really is borne out when we look at Shays or the Whiskey Rebellion or the Freeze Rebellion in more detail. And I think if we're going to use terms like insurrection um, to shed light on political protest and political behaviour, we really need to be aware of the importance of historical contingency. And that brings us to the end of our episode today. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, we'd be particularly grateful if you could go to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. That helps other potential listeners find our podcast feed. We're also available on Spotify, Stitcher, and a host of other podcasting services. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do so by finding us on Twitter using the handle at Juntocast. You can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash thejuntocast. And you can visit our website, www.thejuntocast.com, where you can find show notes and further reading lists for all our episodes. If you'd like to start a conversation by email, you can always get in touch with thejuntocast at gmail.com. That's all we've got time for this month, which leaves me to thank Michael Hatton for joining me. Thank you, Ken. And Roy Rogers for being a participant. Thanks, Ken. And to thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us for the next episode. All right, here we go.